0: Welcome to The Slow Crafted Life, a podcast that explores how to craft an intentional, thriving life while still living your environmental and social values. Listen to inspiring stories of people living their values, succeeding at life, doing good in the world, and inspiring real change. This is The Slow Crafted Life. Welcome to The Slow Crafted Life. I'm your host, Sundown Hazen. Today, we're happy to welcome Michael Snyder Held to the show, Michael spent over 20 years working his way up through the kitchens of New York City, finally becoming sous chef at a Michelin-starred restaurant. But these days, Michael has decided to move away from cooking to pursue a project using mushrooms to help remediate wetlands in the mid-Atlantic region. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thank you very much. I'm excited to get into this conversation. I know you got a lot going on. So before to get started on that journey, Michael, why don't you start at the beginning of your current journey. Uh, You started to learn to cook because of a pretty severe allergy. And tell us about that.
1: Absolutely. Um, So my journey started off as an infant. My mother fed me uh, some formula that had soy protein in it. Soy causes extreme anaphylaxis for me. Um, And so from a very young age, my mom started teaching me to cook. We hadn't really specified what I was allergic to at that time period. However, at four years old, I started uh, learning math through measurements of, of baking and stuff like that with my mom stirring bowls, and I was always in the kitchen. Uh, so I like to credit myself for learning to cook at four years old, um, which is a little pretentious, I guess, but uh, it helps boost my ego, so whatever. Um, and from there, I just kind of always cooked. Um, When I was 12, that's kind of when the FDA changed the laws in the United States about what kind of food could be put into the mainstream food supply. Um, And this is a very big turning point for me in my life, because at that point, everything I ate tried killing me. Um, (laughs) I I was at sleepaway camp the first time I had a very memorable reaction. It was my first time away from home. I was 12. Uh, I was in New Hampshire up at some late camp it was my very first night and my parents had hopped on a plane and gone to uh, i think europe either venice or france or something like that and this is before cell phones so um they dropped me off at camp and i went and had spaghetti with meatballs and uh the last thing i remember was sitting in a wild blueberry field picking blueberries after dinner uh and then i woke up two days later in the emergency room um yeah um And so that was my first big reaction. From that point on, I really had to be very careful about what I ate uh, because soy became an additive in everything. It was a cheap protein they could put in. It was a stabilizer. um, And it was a way to drop food cost um, by adding a a crappier ingredient or an inferior ingredient.
0: no, that's um, intense. That's intense. Uh, go right ahead. And I, I just, to put myself in your shoes for just a moment, which I know I never really can, um, but to have that life or death reaction to, to food, which is absolutely necessary in everybody's life, is, is just hard to imagine. Uh, but it's definitely scary. Um, and at what point did, did you realize Or were you informed that it was soy that was uh, triggering this reaction?
1: um, uh, My father's a a corporate guy. He's a a career-minded person, always did very well. So I was lucky enough to uh, be able to afford um, all the allergist specialists um, all across the country. And we kind of flew around the country for a while, um, going to the best people in the fields, uh, because I am the very first generation of people with food allergies. I am at the forefront of it. Um, when, I was, when I was in school, I was one of two kids out of 3,000 kids in the entire school with anaphylactic re- allergies. And today, it's around one in eight. Wow. Um, and that's because of that big shift that happened when I was 12. Um, because now, everyone from my generation who has kids has been subject to all these chemicals and stuff that we're putting in our food supply. Uh, and their kids are starting to have serious problems because of it. So uh, that's one of the things that kind of sets my blog apart is um, I, I actually have lived through it, whereas most other people uh, who write about food allergies in blogs are parents writing about the kids' food allergies. Hmm. Um, so what was I, – I think that's answering the question. I,
0: yeah. No, so you, you literally uh, had a life-or-death moment in your life where – It triggered you into learning about cooking and and being very aware of what's in your food and being able to prepare food that won't create that reaction in your life. Uh, And as you pointed out, there's there's a large increase in allergic reactions and the severity of those reactions in the population at large. Uh, And your blog is covering that. We'll, of course, link to that in our show notes. Um, Right. But you've also no longer working in cooking. So what's, what's that shift? What was your aha moment that led you to your new path? Um, well, so I had worked my way
1: up. I had a very, very successful career in, in cooking. Um, I, I, I was at my Michelin restaurant. I was a sous chef. It was a two-star restaurant uh, to give people um, an, an example of what that means. There's only 400 two-star restaurants in the world. Um, which means it's the very, it's almost the most prestigious. If you get to three stars, you're god. Um, so I came close. I came close. Nice.
0: Uh, Congratulations, Dad, that is a big accomplishment. You. Well done. Well done.
1: Dad said, "Shoot for the stars, and you might hit the moon." I hit the moon. Um, so I was I was working in my restaurant, and I was running the brunch services. Uh, I, I was one of seven sous chefs. Each of us had a team of commies or. Um, cooks that were under us Um, and we each were responsible for a service or part of a service. I was responsible for the brunch. So uh, we worked 60 hours a week, four of us uh, for two, four hour sessions or dinner services. Everything was made hundred percent from scratch. Um, And I was pulling in wild mushrooms from Washington state. Uh, They were picked in the wild and on my customers plates within 24 hours of being picked. And the food cost in that is insane. Uh, we're talking like $200 a pound, $300 a pound uh, of, of, of mushrooms. And so um, a little backstory on me, um, after I finished culinary school, intellectually, I was kind of bored. Uh, so I decided to take uh, advantage of a federal tax credit for students where if you continue to go to school uh, and you maintain at least... Three credit hours per semester, you get $6,000 back on your taxes. So I took one credit every semester, or one, one class every semester and whatever I thought, thought was fun. And I ended up taking a whole range, I have almost a master's degree in just biologies. Um, and I fell in love with environmental science and all of that, and I'm sitting here in this kitchen dealing with these mushrooms that, were, that have to be wild picked in Washington, and on my plate in 24 hours, and I'm sitting there going, I bet you I can clone these. So I took a tissue sample, um, and I made a glove box in my New York City home kitchen, um, and I somehow managed to clone one of the mitake mushrooms, which is uh, chicken of the woods. And I was so thrilled that I could actually do that that it started a five-year research project for me. and the big aha moment was that, and then I came across a YouTube video, which uh, you could put a link in. It's called Mushrooms as Medicine with Paul Stamets at Exponential Medicine. It's 31 minutes and 55 seconds in length. Mm-hmm. Uh, that video has a what he calls a, a right turn or a left turn. Um, where he just has a, a complete switch in what he's talking about, but everything's linked up to it in the beginning of it. And that radical turn of his, um, I'm gonna quit humanity if he doesn't win a Nobel Prize for. Um but that that video, Paul Stamich took the place of Elon Musk in my mind as my idol.
0: Wow. Um That's a big statement.
1: Yeah. Uh, for 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 what he did and talked about in that video, so I strongly recommend it. But that was my big moment where I went, "This is what I want to do."
0: Um, With well, that, because Paul of- Stamets, that Paul Stamets video. So you, you're right. taking this mushroom from the kitchen, uh, where you're a sous chef in a two-star Michelin restaurant, and you bring it home. You throw it in a, in a box of some kind. And it's all, it's called the
1: glo- it's called the glove box. It's okay. just a, a way to make a sterile environment that you could mm. do do tissue cultures with. Okay. But yes. Go awesome.
0: Ahead. Of all the things, you know, I always like collecting all these great ideas and wishing I could find the time to do it. So, so glad to hear about your story. Uh, so, okay. you you have this glove box and these mushrooms are growing out of a, a tissue sample that you got from the kitchen, and you find this video on YouTube, uh, the Great Global Classroom, a uh, Paul mm-hmm. Stamets, who's somebody I also deeply admire uh, and find fascinating uh, all the work that he has done and is doing with mushrooms. So I understand that you then, did you go and meet Paul? Did you work with Paul? To yes. Study him? Uh, so I saw that video. And
1: as soon as I saw that video, I called up my dad and said, um, I, I said, dad, I know what I want for my birthday. <laughs> um, so I begged him and he covered uh, part of the cost to, for me to go out. Um, it was a two-year wait list uh so i did one of his uh i did it's a, a weekend seminar that he does uh, i flew out to washington uh, onto his compound he has he's got a lot of estates out there of business uh, with his mushrooms but he does a, a teaching class on his actual home property um, and he's got it's basically his first farm uh, so he teaches everything of through the scientific side of production of mushrooms and i spent the two years leading up to that learning how to actually cultivate, and attempting small projects at my house. Um, and then I flew out and learned how to do the actual cultivation uh, with him in his classrooms on his compound.
0: Wow. Um, so tell us a little bit about Paul Stamets. I mean, people are gonna have lots of opportunity to see his, his YouTube videos. He's got tons out there. He's great to listen to, but what's it like being there with Paul? Like, Describe the relationship that he provides through that experience.
1: Um, for me he was like a father figure. Um he was very much like my father uh except he was more like me in relation to my father than my father in relation to me. Um he break, break was that down.
0: That's yeah, what does
1: so, that? Mean? <laughs> so I am the black sheep in my family. Um my 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 father um is a scientist, uh, a very acclaimed scientist. Um my little brother uh, deals for, or builds virtual reality for some firm in New York. And my mom was a Broadway dancer. Here I am. I'm the artist. I'm a chef. Uh, so I've always been the black sheep. I've always been like that. Um, and he, uh, he, I got that vibe from him where he was the one, uh, that went off and did something crazy that nobody said, said, wouldn't work. And because of that, he's got hundreds of patents. Um, and he's literally at the forefront of this entire industry that I'm going into. And half of what I'm doing with my company was invented by him. Um, and and it's all because of he, he took those big risks. And that's what I identified with him the most. Um, he's also very intelligent, very laid back. And he's, he, he's very easy to talk to. Um, I was very starstruck when I first started talking to him, to be honest, uh, which is really weird for me because I've... Uh, my career before the Michelins, I was a tour chef and I toured around the country with bands. Um, so I'm used to dealing with celebrities, but for him, for me, like talking to him was, is, I had a few moments where I couldn't talk. <laughs> um,
0: awesome. So yeah. Awesome. How many people think, are in the class with you when you're doing um, it? There were
1: probably about 20 of us. Um, so it's, it's very hands on. He's got uh Two or three people that work for him uh, that do a lot of the teaching um, and he comes in and does most of the classroom stuff um, and then the lab room stuff is taught by uh, by his people who do the, all his lab work for his company so you basically you come in and you get to shadow people in his own company doing what they're doing uh, and you get to ask all the questions um, and and you get to learn the whys of things so okay. I, was, I it was very good that I went there with two years of tinkering around in my home kitchen um, because I had already figured out a lot of the stuff. And for me, it was reaffirming or reassuring what I was already doing um, and, and telling me why and then giving me better ideas to do it. So, yeah, um, I actually want to go back out and do one of his other courses, mm-hmm. um, more so for fun at this point. Uh, but because I, I liked it out there, it was a lot of fun. Um, and uh, I, I just wanna it, it's like learning from the master.
0: Mm-hmm. Um so it's kind of it's kind of a guru thing, I guess. I don't yeah. know. Did you have you maintained any connections with other classmates that were with you in that? Um I wish I had. There there's a
1: um there's a big list of, of, of us that we all signed up for and then nobody's really talked to anybody else on it. Um there's one group of people that are up in the Finger Lakes and my parents have a a house up in the Finger Lakes and they're in the next town over. So Hmm. I've been meaning to go talk to them, but my shift, my my company and what I want to build has shifted from what I originally wanted to do to what I am doing now. Um, So I went in from the culinary aspect. I wanted to produce mushrooms because there's this huge demand for them these high-end mushrooms for restaurants, uh, the problem is the startup capital. Um, Being chef is not lucrative. Uh, So so 21 years of cooking, um, I've had a lot of crazy life experiences. I don't have too much to show for it. Hmm. Um, So starting up the company that I wanted to start up, I wanted to create a company that produced these high-end mushrooms in a controlled environment to the DC metropolitan restaurants. Um and I started looking for that, but to build the grow rooms I would need, I needed a couple hundred thousand dollars more than I actually had. Um and I didn't want to give away my company. Um so I flew cross country and after I did the um the seminar with Paul, I was coming back and one of my friends, uh he's a, a river association, uh a river keeper. He's a lawyer uh who spends his entire day out on boats. Uh, taking water samples and lobbying for, um, for for the benefit of that specific river. And he saw my Facebook post that I had gone out to meet Paul Stamage, and he goes, what do you know about uh, about what, uh, wetland remediation using mushrooms? Hmm. I said, well, I just learned from the guy who invented the entire industry. He's like, yeah, that's why I'm calling you. Uh, we-
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's convenient.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. Um, so that was two years ago. Um, and I continued to kind of st- to try and do the food side. Um, but the startup cost of just doing the remediation work is so much lesser. Um, and I had always wanted to do the food and then do the remediation um, as like a secondary thing. Mm-hmm. And it was this year that I decided just to drop the entire food thing in the beginning and just do the remediation because I can, I, I'm starting up with pennies on the dollar. Um, it's kind of cool. In, in, in order to sterilize the medium that you grow on with the remediation work, you want to uh, do an anaerobic sterilization. So you get giant tubs of water and you fill it up with wood chips uh, and you put a lid on top of it. And the aerobic uh, bacteria they go and they sterilize it. They 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 eat up all the oxygen until there's no more oxygen in the atmosphere of their micro e- ecosystem, hmm. and then they all die and it becomes an anaerobic environment. At that point, all the aerobic uh, bacteria and enzymes and everything that was there living uh, gets imprinted basically onto the wood chips. So when you take these uh, sterile organisms from my lab, the mushrooms, and you add them into the new wood chips that had the, the organisms previously living on them, they then pick up a history of what was living in that environment. Hmm. Uh, and they become immune to them. So it's like an antibiotic effect. Hmm. Um, and that way you can take lab sterile mushrooms, and then you can grow them in the environment, uh, any environment. So I just take a soil sample from wherever I'm going to go, Uh, and plant these mushrooms, I put it into an anaerobic digester, or not digester, just an anaerobic uh, environment, Um, and I let it sit until it goes anaerobic, pull it back out, and inoculate it with mushroom spawn, and so it's really cheap uh, to do that. I'm doing it in my backyard. I set up uh, a bunch of um, 55-gallon drums with spigots at the bottom of them, so you just fill it up with wood chips, fill it up with water, put a lid on it, uh, let it sit for a week or two, and then drain it back out and you've got, you've got your medium. Um,
0: yeah. So, so that, so uh, I mean, you make it sound so simple uh, and really every- <laughs> water wood chips and some time and, and then you have your, your sample of the mushrooms. What, what, and then, so just to make sure I understand this and to uh, summarize what you talked about is after you've sterilized these wood chips, your the mushrooms then go in there. And because of the, other bacteria or uh, creatures, if you will, um, that were living in the wood chips are still their Their bodies are there, right? They're, they're right. dead bodies because they died through the process. But then the mushroom, it, it senses it, whatever it does, right? It's experiencing that those bodies are still laying there, probably using it as food for itself, I would imagine, because it's a living right. creature as well. And through that process, as it in, if when you introduce it into the wetlands, if it comes across one of those bacteria it now has the ability to overcome it
1: exactly it's, it produces an antigen towards it so an antivirus it's, it's exactly like taking um your flu shot every year um hmm. for these mushrooms and, and and it allows you to it, it allows it to survive otherwise if you were to take a lab sterilized uh mushroom cultivation it's pure it's never been uh introduced to any type of bacteria whatsoever um it will get eaten alive. Hmm. Other, other fungi will eat it alive. Other bacteria will eat it alive. So by inoculating it into a sterile compost or wood chip pile that has had that history already, it then picks up the antigens it needs to defend itself in the natural environment.
0: So why is that important when you're remediating a watershed?
1: Because you want it to be able to survive in each individual location. This allows me to take a lab sterile uh, organism and implant it anywhere in the world hmm. um, with with a large chance of success. If I were just to take the sterile thing and put it in the wetlands, it would die. It would never do anything. Hmm. But this gives it a fighting chance. Um, so I'm, I'm basically introducing new species and organisms into environments. Uh, sometimes you can take... You, you can take natural mushrooms that are growing in that environment already, take tissue samples um, of those, and you'll have a very good chance of being able to do it. Um, whereas a, a lab sterile one uh, that's been cultivated through 60 generations in a lab won't have the same antigens as the one that you pulled out of the wild. Um, but you're giving it the same chance that it would have as if you had just pulled that one out of the wild and reproduced it.
0: Hmm. So are there, are there particular... Um... Types of mushrooms that there are, lend themselves there. like what's the reason of pulling them out of the lab?
1: Uh, so, so different mushrooms are being cultivated now uh, for different purposes. Um, some mushrooms have the ability to break down complex hydrocarbons. So, you have an oil spill. Um, you grow those mushrooms. You create uh, burlap sacks filled with. Uh, a, a colony of those mushrooms, and you implant a wall around the, uh, the, the oil spill, the area that's contaminated, and it creates a physical barrier that doesn't allow the water to, to leave that area, and the water has to flow through your, your, your wall of mushrooms, and those mushrooms then soak up the hydrocarbons, the oil break it down and turn it into organic matter, which other plants, bacteria, and enzymes can then break down in the future and you can actually get rid of the oil spills. Um, Other mushrooms are really great for uh, taking things like E. coli out of water. So, and actually that's that's your standard oyster mushroom, the one you see in supermarkets. Um, That guy uh, can be put into rain gardens, uh, which is what my company is gonna be doing. And you you build it into a rain garden. uh, You create a big sponge. And water runoff is coming down from a farm or someone's lawn, goes through that rain garden. And uh, the oyster mushrooms will actually take up all the excess nutrients that are in the water. So it stops it from getting into the watershed. And it kills off all the E. coli, and salmonella, and all those fun things that come from animal waste uh, before it ever hits the watershed. So, so, so different mushrooms have different specialties, so to speak. Um, and by taking the ones from the lab, you can cultivate those and you can create your own stock of this mushroom does this and this mushroom does that. Uh, and then each crisis or application that you are then, uh, trying to remediate within an environment, you have an arsenal of different tools.
0: Got it. And, And so you mentioned you're doing the oyster mushrooms. Is that correct? Did I hear you correct? Yeah. And then for, uh, to clean up uh, pathogenic organisms so, that could be in this wastewater.
1: For me, my big selling point is uh, is uh, watershed property owners or waterfront property owners and their lawns. Um, I live in the Chesapeake Bay area. Uh, I grew up on the Severn River. I spent sixteen years in a house where, whenever I felt bad, had a bad day, I could throw my kayak off my dock and I could go float for four hours. And when I moved in there, you could see through the water. It was a benthic society, meaning the majority of the, uh, in the animals that lived in the Chesapeake Bay were creatures of the benthos, oysters, crabs, uh, things that ate detris. Um, and then a big shift happened um, in farming in upstate New York and Pennsylvania, which caused huge amounts of uh, chemical runoff from these farms, uh, polluting the bay with huge amounts of nitrogen and phosphorus, um, which caused huge amounts of algae blooms. And the benthic society turned into an algaic society. And what happened was the algae blooms would block out the, the light, causing the plants on the bottom to die, and they would suck up all the oxygen in the water um, and, and uh, cause all the fish to die. So we ended up with these big dead spots in the Chesapeake Bay and the water went from crystal clear to you would go swimming in it and every hair follicle on your body would be covered in a brown algae. It was disgusting. Um, so I grew up with that and that's 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 what I watched coming up. So I've always wanted to do this. And um, what I'm going to be doing is literally going around to all of those property owners that have their nice lawns that are just concrete pavements for rainwater to go straight in and wash whatever they're putting on their lawn right into the bay. I'm gonna go around and I'm gonna try to sell them a product a service that inoculates their lawns with mushrooms that soak up all the excess fertilizer they're putting on their lawn so it doesn't go into the bay. Um, And with some luck after some time, I might be able to get the government in on it. I might be able to get activist groups in on it. I might be able to get service credits. Mm -hmm. in the Chesapeake Bay right now, if you grow oysters off your dock, any money that you spend on the oysters comes off your taxes as a credit. Uh, so I might be able to get something like that for the mushrooms uh, because that's a bigger problem than the fact that we don't have enough oysters in the bay right now. Um, and, and
0: probably related. In yeah, many absolutely, ways related, too, right? absolutely related.
1: Absolutely related. <laughs> um, so, so that's kind of what I'm doing. Um, huh. I'm gonna, my, my company is going to be designed to inoculate people's lawns, um, and it's going to be designed uh, to create water or rain gardens, uh, divert water from roads um, that would just flow directly into it into a rain garden, which would act with a sponge and slow the amount of water that actually enters the bay while purifying it.
0: Awesome. That that's really ambitious and it sounds significant. And uh, one of those aha, uh, very duh moments. Like it's that complexity of having multiple organisms that support each other. Um, right. I, was, I was reading about because uh, I, I now have a lawn. So when we moved to Washington, before we moved to Washington, I had a fake lawn um, and, and that worked with the rest of my garden. And now we're in a, in a house that had a lawn that came with the lawn. Uh, So it's my first lawn where I've had to mow it and fertilize it and, you know, do all these things, which I'm not really comfortable with. And I came across the uh, micro clovers as a way to automatically fertilize the lawn and they can deal with the lawnmower and they just integrate themselves in and then the grass and the uh, clovers work together in that environment. And it sounds like with what you're doing is I should probably have some mushrooms in there at the same time. Um, Absolutely. So how do the, how do the mushrooms Deal with the lawnmower. Like I'm still thinking as a homeowner, I got my lawn. I want it to look nice, and the mushrooms sound great. Uh, so, I so you're only, about, What does that look like?
1: You're only gonna see mushrooms like a day or two after the rains. Uh, so, if you have a big wet season, you'll see mushrooms. They'll just pop up. Um, but during the dry seasons, you're not gonna see them at all. Mushrooms create like a, a finger-like network, a very thin network, of like millimeter thick, even smaller. Uh, that just grows directly under the soil, um, and it's called mycelium. Mycelium, um, it, it's a net, uh, and it, it spreads out across your lawn. It's, it's got extreme tensile strength, so it stops. Uh, if you have a lot of runoff, it'll stop uh, erosion as well. It'll hold land in place, uh, and it grows underneath. So its not, you're not going to see it at all until the mushrooms go to fruit. If they go to fruit, they might not even fruit. Um, but what you're going to do is you'll create an organism, a layer that just sucks up anything extra. And it also, it's, it's the neuro pathways of, of the plant kingdom. Mushrooms act as ways to transfer water and nutrients from one tree to the next in the forest. Um, they, feed, uh, they, they feed other organisms as far as, um, this is where I stopped being an expert um <laughs> they 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 feed other organisms uh, immune properties uh, the ability to fight um uh, fight other things that are going on in their bodies uh, mushrooms uh, offer a huge amount of immune uh, immunology to different organisms uh which is why you'll see um bugs living in mushrooms you'll see bees living in mushrooms uh eating the actual mycelium the juices from the mycelium mm-hmm. um and it, it so, so one of the problems that we have in, in, in the world today is that we have gone to single culture agriculture, single crop agriculture, and we've killed off the billions of different uh, organisms within each environment. And in doing that, one of those was our mushrooms. So if you don't have fungus in your soil, you don't have anything properly breaking anything down. You don't have anything transferring uh, nutrients, water, messages to other plants. You have nothing. Mm-hmm. So by adding adding mushrooms back into your lawn, the only thing you're doing is making your house, uh, your property healthier, and, and you're saving the environment around you. I I intend on spreading mushrooms everywhere. I can, whether I'm allowed to or not. Um, and I may or may not have said
0: that. I'm, I don't know if I just did. Um. <laughs> I'm not sure I heard you. So uh, you, as a homeowner, you come in and you put these mushrooms in my lawn or the mycelium and you're inoculating my lawn. I don't have to change my mowing habits, like that's going to stay the same. Are there other behaviors for, again, just as a, a, a average person, um, you know, goes to work, watches football on Sundays mows their lawn on Saturdays. Uh, what other things in lawn care might change or have to change in order to support those mycelium as in, in that?
1: The in only that thing system? that would have to change after after the mushrooms have been uh, inoculated and come, become part of your organ or your, your environment, the only thing that would have to change is you would have to make sure you're not using anti antifungals in your lawn treatment. Mm. Uh, so you would have to stop spraying chemicals on your lawn as much, (laughs) which, which is, is kind of, if you're thinking about putting mushrooms in your lawn in the, in the first place, you you probably already have stopped putting chemicals on your lawn, Hmm. uh, for the most part. Um, but what my company would do is, um, I'm, I'm looking at pellets, um, and inoculating a lot of pellets and I would just spread pellets across your lawn. And for the first year that you sign up with me, I'll come back uh, and constantly re your lawn once a month or so, and make sure that it actually gets to colonize your lawn. Um, and then after that period of that first year, uh, the mushrooms themselves will have found their own pockets where they can survive and you don't have to do anything. Mm. They'll just live there. Um, so if you already water your lawn, good for you. My mushrooms are going to grow. Uh, if you don't water your lawn, who cares? My mushrooms are going to grow anyways. Mm. Uh, it's, it's just about introducing them there because your lawn has destroyed all the fungal properties over the last however long it's been. Uh, and we're just reintroducing that back into the environment. And it's allowing, it's allowing uh, purification processes to happen. It's allowing a better health of your entire garden systems and all of that.
0: Yeah. So where are you on being able to deploy this service for people? Um, so I launched my company literally a week ago. Um,
1: I, so as of today, I am the CEO and founder of Greens Farms Incorporated. Um, my next step, I, right now I've, I'm, I've built out my sterile lab room um, and I'm building out my containers of my, my, my sterilization containers for my wood chips and my, my, uh, my media that I'm inoculating. Um, and, and my next step is to start, start funding it, uh, which is not very, which I really don't need to fund anything. Um, I just need to get the banks set up and then the website set up after that. I'm going to start, um, going around, um, and canvassing, uh, talking to, uh, owners, I'm going to talk to uh, the environment section of the newspapers, um, and really start spreading it. I'm trying to have my first couple of gardens set up by the end of the summer. Um, so I'm very, very new, but uh, I'm actually up and running and moving at this point. Fantastic! Uh, which-
0: and that takes a lot of work. Congratulations! Yeah. That's a big first step, and you know, there's a there's a big road ahead of you. Uh, and as those developments come out and, and you're able to share them, please uh, keep us up to date and we'll do our best to also get people connected with your new website and uh, any articles that um, are written about your efforts. So uh, good luck and keep Thanks. it going, man. It's really exciting to be able to hear that and share that with our audience today. Um, Thank you very much. Yeah. I, I also understand that the mushrooms is not the only thing that you're interested in. and uh, participate with, maybe experimenting with, uh, that with your biology education that you've also, um, dabbled in some aquaponics, uh, a topic we've covered a couple times on this show. And I'm very uh, fond of myself. Can you explain to our listeners what you're currently growing? So aquaponics is my, uh, guilty pleasure.
1: Um, it's something that, uh, like I said, I grew up on the watershed. Um, And I fell in love with environmental sciences. Um, So I started studying aquaponics 15 years ago, 10, 15 years ago, before it was ever like a big thing. There was, I think, four aquaponic farms in the entire country when I discovered it. Um, And I wrote business plan after business plan, and my father called it the stupid fish idea. Um, And I didn't listen to him, and I just kept going with it. And I'd always just... Build home versions of it for myself, uh, experimenting. And so, um, what you can see that readers can't see is behind me. I have a hundred-gallon tank, uh, fish tank, in my. I'm I'm sitting in my living room. I have a hundred, my dining room essentially, with my kitchen in front of me. But I have a hundred-gallon fish tank. It's filled with minnows. I have, um, I have twenty tilapia coming that should show up in the next month or so um, from Lakeway tilapia um they actually have their own uh they they actually breed their own tilapia they're not getting it from somewhere else so you know you it's a good culture but um as the tilapia is showing up and that system has two different directions the water goes so the water flows from the tank into a sump in the bottom it goes through a natural filter that you would create like in your pond um and water is diverted on a timer, a mechanical timer. Every 20 minutes for one minute, it pumps water up into a series of tubes that are mounted vertically on my wall. Uh, I painted them copper, so it actually looks nice. It looks really nice, in my opinion. Um, And each tube has 22 ports that a plant can grow in it. So I have four tubes vertically on my wall. I have around 80, 88 plants that I can grow out of it. And I have artificial lights uh, on my ceilings that aren't quite bright enough at this point, but I am growing all my favorite culinary herbs in my kitchen. Um, So I have one row that's all lettuces and a salad mix. I have a lot of basil. I have a lot of, I I have a pesto bar essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) And then I have whatever else I feel like putting in it, it changes, it changes. Um,
0: So. Awesome. Keeping it fresh.
1: Yeah, I've actually had a lot of people come in, look at it, and go, can you build that for me? So I might, I might have a little bit of a hobby on my company uh, of building one of these things in people's houses every once in a while, and who knows, that might turn into something. Yeah. I, 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 I'm constantly moving. I'm, I'm of the ADHD generation, mm-hmm. and so I, I always have three or four projects working at one time. Um, this is definitely one of them.
0: Awesome. Uh, before we got started, you were talking to me, sharing some of your other plants that you're growing. I can see uh, on the other side of the fish tank there. And why don't you share some of those other things you're growing in your in your dining room there?
1: Uh, yes. Yeah. So uh, I talked about the two directions the water went, and I only told you about one of them so far. <laughs> uh, so um, I have drip irrigation that comes out of the sump as well, um, and that's operated by a hand crank. I turn it on whenever I want to. Um, with a fish tank, you have to you have to replace some of the water every so often. So instead of sucking it out and throwing it down, I have it going directly to my, my home plants and I have what I call my breakfast bar. I have uh Arabica coffee. I have a dwarf banana and then I have um, some delicious oranges. Mm. Um, and then I have a couple other things that are just randomly to- uh, planted up with that. Uh, I'm an epiphyllum collector. A what? Um, epiphyllum. What's that? It, it's a it's a cactus. Uh, um, it's not a cactus. It's a succulent plant. Uh, it's um, it it it's an orchid cactus is what it's called. Um, there's it's a whole a, a whole genre I guess uh, of plants. Um, my grandmother bought one over in the 1920s from the Caribbean. Uh, I'm the third generation home taker or, or caregiver of an epithelium plant. Uh, It's what started it all for me. It's called The Queen of the Night, Um, and my grandmother never got to see it bloom, unfortunately. Mm. Uh, It'll put out one blossom, and the blossom takes a month to form, and then on one lucky night at about 6 p.m., once the sun starts going down, the blossom slowly starts opening, Um, and by 3 in the morning, it's completely open, and the second the first light hits it, it dies. Wow, Uh, And it's the most beautiful plant I've ever flower I've ever seen. It smells heavenly. And I got to start seeing those bloom probably when I was like eight years old, my mom was taking care of it at the time. Um, And I now get every summer I get, I get flushes of like 14 to 15 flowers at a time. Um, So I have, I have about three different kinds that I've been collecting. Every time I see a different kind, I, I grab a clipping and I clone it. And, um, so I have a couple of those behind me as well.
0: Nice. But, I hope we can uh, put some effort into finding some links. Uh, I also like to collect rare a variety of plant life uh, for the house. On your uh, coffee, what? How? How easy or how? What are some challenges? Is it? Are you able to actually make your own coffee beans or grow your own coffee beans? I've never
1: gotten it. I've never gotten it to flower yet. Mm. Um, I haven't really tried either though. Uh, So my coffee plant comes from one of those gifts you would give your secretary. Mm. Uh, It's like a coffee cup that says something like, ah, coffee on it. It has a bunch of baby coffee plants growing out of it. Uh, I bought one of those, and I separated them out, and I made like six coffee plants uh, that actually came to grow big, and my tree is only four years old, and Mm -hmm. I think it's – four to seven years before they start actually flowering and they have to have the right nutrients and lighting and all that fun stuff so i might i might be just at that point i just put it into a bigger pot this year so it grew a foot this year it's been kind of it's been kind of a bonsai for the last three years uh so but now now it's turning into an actual tree so i might i might actually see something out of it
0: awesome how fun how fun (laughs) Uh, I'm inspired by all your efforts here. Uh, We've got mushrooms, we've got aquaponics, you've got your herb garden literally growing in your kitchen, you've got your breakfast garden, of tropical, and uh, (laughs) what probably are some unusual plants, cactus, succulents that that I was never aware of, and I'm glad that you introduced them to us today. Uh, I look forward to learning more about those. Um, All of that does sound like a a pretty good recipe, if you will, for a, a potential super farm.
1: Ah, uh, so yes. Um, so that's the secret of the mushroom company. Uh, the mushroom company is stage one out of a five stage global takeover. (laughs) All
0: right. We're breaking it here live on the slow crafted life. This is fantastic. Um, so
1: what I like about aquaponics is it takes a natural system, a, a cycle, um, and it uses waste from one department and it, produces something from another. And it's a very good start, but it's not all there. And there's still waste streams that come from it. There's still uh, inputs. So what I'm trying to do is create a farm that has less inputs than it has outputs um, by using other natural systems. And uh, my father once told me that there's no such thing as a new idea. There are only new applications to old ideas. And that is the basis of this entire farm. So my mushrooms are eventually going to turn into a a composting business that takes waste streams from other uh, industries and composts it and uses that as the substrate to grow my mushrooms on. uh, So I can reduce waste streams from others. Uh, And the reason I did that is because in aquaponics, uh, in commercial aquaponics, you have um, solids that you have to separate out of the water. Um, and what do you do with that? You throw it in your garden, you, you it's a, it's a big waste stream. It's, it's exactly what I'm trying to stop from entering into my watershed in, in, in here in Maryland. Um, so I, I'm, I'm using, I'm setting up the infrastructure to get rid of one of my waste streams for my big aquaponics system. And I'm going to tie in a bunch of different services uh, with that for other industries. Um, Does that make sense? I might have, I lost myself just there.
0: So (laughs) you're talking about, you know, processing waste in a way that uh, turns it into something beneficial on the other end, like your mushrooms are part of that process that break down waste so that they stay out of watersheds, for instance. Um, and then those mushrooms themselves become something, uh, right, to help it's a, the it, system. Yeah,
1: right. And and I can at that point I can grow uh, food mushrooms on them. Hmm. Uh, so I can take waste streams from my aquaponic system from the restaurant down the street, uh, and I can purify them for the environment, causing a negative carbon footprint. And I can then turn that into a product which I can turn around and put on the market. Um, and that's just using waste from other industries. So my super farm that I'm building has about 17 processes that are just like that. Um, that takes somebody else's idea in a different industry and says, what if I apply it like this to mine? Hmm. And so, uh, I have three big parts that's, um, there's the mushroom startup. That's giving me my funding to build my actual aquaponics farm. And once I get that built out, then I will be able to start adding on different things. It's kind of like, um, it, it's kind of like building. I don't know. It's like it's like building a character in a role playing game where you add on some a new stat to your to your current character by adding something else on. And I think with all the things I want to add on to it, um, I think that in the end I will be able to have uh, more positive outputs than I have negative uh, coming out of it. For example, uh, photobioreactors that the uh, petroleum industries are using to grow algae um, could be turned around. And instead of growing algae that's rich in lipids, fats, uh, that they then turn around and turn into biodiesel, I'll grow algae that is rich in proteins, fish food. Hmm. And you pull that algae out using the wastewater from. My aquaponic system to grow and further purify the water, run the water from my aquaponic system through a photobioreactor, grow a specific type of algae that's high in nutrients, purify my water more, grow 90% of my fish food, less money to run my system, more purification properties, less... uh, I'm depending on somebody else's supply stream and a a, a more rounded out system.
0: Yeah. Wow, you put a lot of thought into this. Uh, Fish food is is definitely an area uh, that needs more attention when it comes to these systems. And so to think about that as part of the cycle uh, is important in finding the right solution so that we have a a more complete environment because the natural environment does provide food for the fish right right it already does Uh, (laughs) so uh, implementing that as we further and you are working towards building in all the pieces so that the environment supports itself uh cyclically uh you put a lot of thought into that so where where are you at in this process of bringing your super farm to life i have four tubes mounted on my wall (laughs) in my kitchen Awesome. Um, Got to start somewhere, right? Got to start somewhere. (laughs) And you've got a sterilization plant in your basement, and you've launched a business to inoculate yards. You've done a lot more than put four tubes up on your kitchen.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. So that's about where I am. Um, I have to build a proof of concept, Um, and that's kind of what the fish tank on my in my kitchen is for me. It's to show I can do it. I'm still having trouble with uh, micronutrients in my water for my plants. Um, My plants aren't growing nearly as well as they should be, and I don't know why yet. Um, This is my first time I've done a big system, and this is still a very small system. Um, I think if I actually have space to do a real system, it'll be a lot easier than this because this is – I'm working with like 120 gallons in total, 140 gallons in total, and that's small. Your water parameters change all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And so – I'm pretty much only getting – I'm getting slow growth uh, with very hardy plants, and the non-hardy plants aren't surviving right now. Mm. Um, but I've only lived in this house for three months, and so this is still a new system, and it's still I, – I kind of had this moment where I was like – I walked into my kitchen, and I had the perfect cutout on the wall from where they ran the HVAC units or tubing up into my bedroom above me from the basement. Uh, to put seven-foot tubes on my wall. And I went, I have no furniture in here, and I have nobody to tell me I can't build this thing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's a dangerous so, combination.
1: So, so in t- instead of actually moving into my kitchen for the first month, I built an aquaponics system. Um,
0: <laughs> awesome. You're a man after my own heart. <laughs> <laughs> cheers. Yeah, cheers to that. Absolutely. It, it is a wonderful experiment, to participated for sure I've, I've been bitten by the aquaponics fish uh, and definitely killed more fish than I'd like to admit um, but learned a lot through that process and it does take time to get them established and build up the colonies of bacteria that are necessary to transfer the nutrients and, and to participate in that um, and you'll I believe you're going to get there because you've putting in the effort and you're getting the education and you're surrounding yourself with other people and one of the things I really appreciate about this podcast and this community that we're putting together is that we're getting folks like yourself listening and participating on the Facebook page. And we're connecting people that have the energy, the insight, the passion, the drive, and the education to, to connect the dots and then fill in the blanks because none of us can do it on our own. And the only way a super farm is going to work is I, I doubt you want to be there by yourself.
1: <laughs> no, not at all.
0: Right.
1: Uh, I, I need a lot of people on that one. I'm trying to design it in a fashion, though, that won't get noticed until it's up and running, because I'm kind of scared of big corporations. um, With because if my farm goes the way I want it to go, it's going to be threatening major industries. Um, Because I'm building it, I I, I incorporated my company for a reason. And that's because the United States is not for the citizens anymore. It's for the companies for the corporations. Uh, Corporations have more power than citizens so i have to be a corporation i have to have that cutthroat mentality to be able to survive and environmental environmentalism as a whole needs to be like that in today's industry at least in america today because while it's nice to sit there and say yeah i want to be a nonprofit," this is america
0: <laughs> um yeah i mean we have to you have to understand the rules of the game in order to play well, right. Even when you want to change the game or you want to do something different, um, you'll we, and it's, those are lessons I've had to learn along the way as well. Uh, being an idealist and passionate and thinking about big concepts and wanting not accepting what we have, knowing that there is ways that, like you said, they're not new ideas. Uh, right. But bringing out those ideas that have seemed to work in the past, that have seemed to work on their own, quote-unquote nature, and then working with it, right, and incorporating it in new ways. Uh, it's, it's really fascinating to hear your story, and I, it's awesome. Uh, I know that you had this cooking passion, though, too, and so on your farm, uh, when you do get the systems in place, you have the right people involved, you have the place to build it, uh, will you be back in the kitchen to feed all these people with this wonderful food you're creating, or is that it's a po- something? It's you're- a possibility.
1: Um, one of the cool things, if you look at all the three-star restaurants in the world, all of them either own their own farm, or they commission a farm solely for them. Um, so that's one of the few things that they all have in common. Um, and I was 12, 12, 10, something like that. I was on a ski trip in Vermont. And we stayed at a a little bed and breakfast, and I looked at my mom and said, this is what I'm going to retire to. And so I think I actually knew what I was doing way back when. Um, I might. uh, I like cooking on small levels more than I like cooking on big levels now. I prefer cooking for friends and family and stuff like that. So I might. I I will definitely have an industrial kitchen in whatever place I end up living in for the rest of my life. And I will definitely throw big food parties and things like that. I will do that. Uh, I might, I might not run my own kitchen. Um, One of the cool things I did uh, is I did not specify exactly what my corporation was going to be doing. I simply stated that I was going to be practicing legal business practices in the United States. Uh, So that way I can create different, uh, DBAs or trade names under my own corporation and do whatever I want. Uh, one of the things I want to do with greens farms incorporated, um, is have a a trade name, a DBA of because pancakes. (laughs) And I, I, I just like making pancakes. I like making gourmet pancakes and I want to sell them at farmer's markets while I'm educating people about my mushroom business. Um, you know, for cash business on the side. Mm -hmm. Um, But I can get all the permits and everything under my corporation and just have a DBA with it. Um, And I have sauces like uh, clementine blueberry with um, uh, infused maple syrups um, for for my mushrooms. And I have the whole business plan written written out because that's what I do in my spare time. I build businesses. I don't know why, but I do. (laughs) Awesome.
0: But you (laughs) Um, have that entrepreneurial spirit, clearly. And why not? Because pancakes. Um, who doesn't love pancakes? Exactly. Yeah. I <laughs> love it. Love it. So uh, people listening today and hearing your story and getting inspired to uh, want to contribute or be part of what you're doing or learn more about the mushrooms in their lawn, uh, how do people get a hold of you? Um, right now, my only main
1: way to reach me would be through my personal blog my my uh it's called a chef's laboratory um that's the only thing up and running i own the servers to not the servers i own i own i own the domain i own the hosting i'm probably going to use that site to branch off and build my other websites uh so that has all my contact information on it somewhere i think um if not um you can find the the blog on facebook um I have to admit I haven't done too much work on my blog in the last year or so because I've been busy doing other things. Um, so it's kind of falling off. It, I, it's, it's, my blog is the one way I want to maintain my food. Um, so I'm still going to continue doing it uh, in some pa- in some fashion. I'm not sure how it might turn into a YouTube channel. Uh, but it's some, it's some way for me to ma- maintain my connection and continue pushing my culinary drive. Um, So that will always be up and running in some way, shape or form until my other company's stuff is up and running.
0: Fantastic. Well, I hope people take the time. We will, of course, include links here in the show notes uh, for what what we do have to link people to your website. Uh, And as you launch your new products and services, uh, we'll do our best to keep those updated. And I hope that we also see you around the the Slow Crafters Facebook group uh, and then people can find you there as well. Um,
1: Absolutely. I've, I've, uh, I have joined it.
0: Oh, fantastic. Uh, and
1: I've been reading up on it. Um, that's why I suggested a couple of the companies to look into.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, we're, we're growing movement. So, yeah, thank you for the suggestions. And uh, we'll be reaching out to those folks. And um, I, ha- I have a feeling our conversations are going to be continuing well beyond this podcast episode uh, and connecting and creating real meaningful community through our connection with each other and the food and then the needs that we have and elevating them into a way that we are successful and fulfilled in our lives. So I really appreciate your time and your story today, Michael. I do have a couple quick fun questions to end on just to help round out our audience's experience with knowing who you are as a person. You ready for that? Yes, All I right. am. All right. So, uh, you are a foodie and you're arrest, you know, you are a distinguished chef. Uh, I'd love to know what's your favorite restaurant or meal.
1: Okay, so my favorite restaurant is a place in uh, New York City called Hot Kitchen. It's real Szechuan food. Um, walk in the door, pop four tums as you walk in the door. It's super <laughs> spicy. Um, well, you're probably gonna want some afterwards as well. The Village Chicken is phenomenal. Hmm. Uh, it's it's a cheap place to eat. Uh, everything's family style. You can accidentally spend fifty dollars and have enough food for six people when there's only two of you. Um, it's, it's amazing food. Um, I think it's on Second Avenue in the Lower East Side. Um, phenomenal food.
0: Uh, as,
1: as far as my favorite food to cook, it changes daily. I like doing ferments right now. It's my big passion is, is, is making different kinds of sauerkrauts and pickles mm. and stuff.
0: Awesome. You know, I've never liked pickles until recently I was introduced to fried pickle chips.
1: Yep, yeah. that's kind of southern.
0: I think. <laughs> yeah, I think those are the only way that I can accept pickles, but they are delicious. So good, and fermented foods are so great too. To, yep, yeah. they're
1: good for you as well. It's uh, it's how you get all your um, or what, what do they call it? Um,
0: the microbiome, or yeah, 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 yeah. Specific, yeah. There's a specific class, though. I'm sure that's that's another topic. It'd be great to get somebody uh, lactobacillium. Um, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's a topic we need to explore further on the show. Uh, how about entertainment-wise? What are what's a TV show, a podcast, or a book that you really are getting into right now?
1: Ah, so far as far as entertainment, that's the wrong question to ask me. Um, my entertainment, as far as reading goes, it's like scientific studies and stuff like that. what you want to ask me as far as uh, entertainment is 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 about my skateboard hobby.
0: Ah, yes, uh, yes. Um, so
1: I ha- when I, when I, I, I mentioned briefly, which I haven't really shared with you guys cause we don't have time. Uh, I was on tour with rock bands as a chef way back when. Um, and I started skating because I realized we got dropped off in cities with no transportation on our days off. And so a skateboard gave you extra mileage. I eventually ended up, uh, teaching my dog to tow me on my skateboard after I stopped touring. Nice. Um, and about six months ago, which is the answer to your next question. Um, I bought an electric skateboard. They're called eboards. Mm-hmm. Uh, the company was called skate Volt. Uh, it's a $600 skateboard. Um, it goes about, it's, it, it lists like 15 miles in range. Uh, it gets about five, uh, but it goes 20 miles an hour. Uh, it's super fun. Um, and I'm about to buy a new one. There's a, A company, a a guy up in New York City who built, who hand builds these boards. It's called Cali NYC. Uh, You can put a link for that if you want. Uh, Mm. They're gorgeous boards. Mm. Uh, It's like a a mix between a dune buggy and a Formula One racer. Oh wow! Um, (laughs) In in the form of a skateboard. Uh, They're not cheap, not cheap at all. But I'm drooling over them. That's going to be my next big purchase. Um, It's it's a super sexy board. Uh, that's what I like to do for fun. I cruise around for hours on end. Uh, people look at you funny cause nobody expects you to see a skateboard going uphill at twenty miles an hour. Um. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's awesome. Man, um, I gotta start saving up.
1: They're fun. you can you can buy the cheap ones. like my my board, uh, I wouldn't my skateboard's a good starter board. Uh, like it's, it, there's a whole underground movement right now. That's just starting. Hmm. Uh, you're seeing these scooters pop up in major cities all over. Uh, I saw those and I went, I bet you there's a skateboard. And so oh. I, I
0: was right. There were skateboards, <laughs> really? you just, skateboards laying around the city. You just jump on it and
1: no, not at all. I saw, I saw, I saw the, the scooters lying around the city. And I said, I bet you they make skateboards like that. And I was right. Hmm. Uh, you have to, you have to buy them. Um, oh. oh, the but, electric.
0: Yeah, I see what right.
1: you're saying. Yep, yep. So, 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 so I bought one. I, I researched and I got a, what I thought was a mid-range one. Basically, I got a really good cheap one. Mm.
0: Um, <laughs> yeah, I got to start somewhere.
1: Um, and, and there's a whole community of people that build them uh, and custom build them. So when you start seeing them, you can buy you could probably build it for a couple hundred dollars cheaper uh, if you know how to build it, mm. um, and there's whole communities based on how to build them, and that's what I'm starting to get into now as my hobby.
0: Awesome, awesome, doing so much, so much. Uh, I can't sit still. Yeah, <laughs> I, I can relate absolutely. What's uh? You, you mentioned Paul Stamets, uh, phenomenal, inspirational, uh, genius uh, in in mycology today uh, and probably of all time. Is there another environmentalist that you, you admire?
1: Not that I can think of by name. There's movements that I like, um, environmentalism. I, I will always lean towards being an environmentalist than a a humanist. I, I particularly like the movement of replanting oyster reefs or not oyster reefs, um, coral reefs. Mm. Um, in in the areas that they're dying. The the guy that just discovered uh, fragmenting them, um, he's something I really want to look into because I used to scuba dive before I started having bad sinus infections. Um, And it's something I want to get back into. And I have to keep moving so I can can see a holiday trip learning how to do that because I like scuba diving. Um,
0: Yeah, no, that's great. And, you know, it's about the preference if you will of environmentalism over humanism is there's there's so many opportunities for people to, to make a difference or to address problems that are going on and, and none one of us can do that can tackle all of them so we, right. do, ha- we do have to focus where our energy is and where our passion is and what, what fuels you and what lights you up and if environmentalism is that great you know that's important the humanism great if that's what fires somebody up great because that also needs to happen, and really, the, we can't. You have to choose one individually, but overall, they all have to be addressed. Exactly. So, yeah. So I, I don't think we need to apologize for that, or to, uh, <laughs> you know, to say that you're not just because you're choosing one over the other doesn't mean the other one is not necessary or important to address. It's just not where your where your heart's at and where your energy right. is, and that's that's great because the things you are doing, Michael, are significant uh, and they're fascinating. And, and they're taking you into a lot of different directions that we look forward to hearing more about in the future. Um, and if you are interested in having more conversations like this of your own, please consider popping by our Facebook group. Slow Absolutely. Crafters. Yeah. And for our audience, at Slow Crafters Living a Mindful Life. We're gearing up for a big month of events for Plastic Free July, including lots of live streams and ideas on how to reduce your waste and eliminate single-use plastics from your life. If you are planning to take the challenge of going plastic-free for a whole month, you definitely want to join us now so you can create some strategies and plans to help you hit that goal. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we would love for you to write us a review on iTunes or share the podcast with one friend who might need to hear what we talked about today. If you have any questions about aquaponics or farming, that's something I also have a lot of knowledge about. And feel free to stop by my Monday morning live stream, Sunrise with Sundown, and Ask Away. Thank you so much, Michael, for participating with us today and sharing your story. I look forward to seeing what you do in the future.
1: Thank you very much. I look forward to staying in contact and for future conversations.
0: Dang.